Hi all, you're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of At The Beam. I'm here today, of course, with uh, Dr. Trudy Wu, and we're joined today by a very special guest. So today we have uh, Dr. Ryan Morse joining in from the University of North Carolina. So Ryan is a native of Kansas and graduated from the University of Kansas Medical School in 2019, and he's currently a PGY4 resident in radiation oncology at UNC. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. We have a Tar Heel in the house today. (laughs) I will note that we all met each other on the interview trail and we've all remained friends, which is very nice. Yeah, Ryan and I are still friends because he owes me 20 bucks. But anyways, Ryan, (laughs) thank you for joining us today. So we're hoping the listeners can get to know you better. So we have a couple of questions for you. Do you mind um, just telling us a little bit about yourself? You know, what brought you to the field of radiation oncology and all that? Sure. Yeah, like you mentioned, I'm from Kansas and I've kind of kept following basketball schools out here to Chapel Hill to the University of North Carolina. Um, I actually was a chemical engineer for a few years um, and kind of decided that that was not the path that I wanted to go down and then went towards uh, medical school and then kind of quickly got uh, interested in the oncology field with the patient population and was really just trying to kind of figure out which specialty to go into and kind of just given my background in engineering it was just a little fortuitous with the technology and treatment planning and everything that I kind of found my way into the radiation oncology department. Yeah, it sounds really great. Uh, so Ryan, I understand that uh, you've been delving into um, pretty good research work over at UNC, including work in geriatric oncology. And even uh, recently, you just started a phase two prospective clinical trial in breast cancer. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your work? Sure. So um, yeah, the prospective trial we're actually running I think is kind of a very attractive option that we're hoping that older patients with breast cancer uh, would find appeasing is we're testing essentially radiation alone versus endocrine therapy alone in, you know, the patient cohort that would meet criteria for kind of the prime two Hughes uh, studies, kind of these low risk breast cancer patients that are older than age 65. And so, like I mentioned, we're testing endocrine therapy alone versus accelerated partial breast radiation alone. So just five fractions total every other day to the partial breast. And I think that it's going to be hopefully a nice option for these patients. Whereas, you know, classically breast radiotherapy was delivered over three to five weeks. And by only offering it in five treatments, I think it can go a long way for some of these patients that, you know, uh, logistically may not have been able to come for longer courses of radiation in the past. Love it. That's great. Um, And then we have another question to ask you, and we think that this is a very important question. What is is one thing that you think is just universally hated by everyone out there? Mm. You go first. Uh, Yeah, sure. Put a little bit of thought into this, and given that football season is coming back around, I think the Baker Mayfield uh, progressive insurance commercials might be uh, one thing I cannot stand. Um, (laughs) Although he is now coming to North Carolina, so hopefully I don't have to see more of those commercials, but I'm sure that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Josh, what about you? Oh, it has to be UNC basketball for sure. <laughs> Universally hated. <laughs> Universally hated. <laughs> um, 
All right. I think for me, I think no one enjoys putting on a duvet cover. <laughs> Which, oh, yeah. have you two men ever put one. on a duvet cover? Yeah, well, you know, I did it once. <laughs> it's literally the worst thing ever. I hate it. Yeah, that sucks. That's a good one. <laughs> you got to make sure you use the little ties and get each corner uh, fastened correctly. Exactly. Oh, my God. You have techniques. That's incredible. <laughs> Mine just uh, lumps into one end. You just try to use that one end. Well, now we all know that Josh doesn't use the ties as you should in a duvet cover. <laughs> so we are going to move into our case. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about locally advanced breast cancer um, again. In a previous episode, we worked through a case of a HER2 positive patient who had undergone breast conservation therapy. And then today we'll be reviewing uh, post-mastectomy radiation therapy. So a 55-year-old female, she presents to you with a new breast mass. Her prior mammogram a year ago was BIRATS1, and she has no significant medical history. So Ryan, what are your next steps? Sure. So I'd start with a detailed history and physical exam. On the history, I'd be paying specific attention to any family history of any breast cancer. I'd, you know, given that this was a, um, you know, I'd ask if this was uh, picked up by a self-exam or, or by imaging. Um, and then I want to know if she was ever on any hormone replacement therapy at all. Um, and if she had any history of any irregular mammograms in the past and had she been getting those consistently. Um, on exam, I had performed bilateral breast exam. Uh, paying attention to the size and mobility of the breast mass, the location in the breast, if there's any suspicious skin changes, and I would also be evaluating for any palpable lymphadenopathy. Okay, good. So she is G3P2. She's postmenopausal. She's never used hormone replacement therapy. There's no family history of cancer or irregular mammograms. And her last mammogram was actually eight months ago. On exam, she has a seven centimeter mobile mass in the left upper outer quadrant. There are no overlying skin abnormalities. And then when you're palpating her left axilla, you notice that there are also enlarged and mobile lymph nodes in the axilla. There's no superclavicular lymphadenopathy. So can you quickly review the regional lymph node stations for breast cancer and then describe what your next steps are? Yeah, so uh, the first thing that I kind of remember when I'm thinking about the lymph nodes uh, is the pectoralis minor as kind of a landmark. Um, level one lymph nodes are inferior and lateral to the pec minor, and then sitting behind them is level two. Then as you move more medial to the pec minor is the level three lymph nodes. And then uh, as you move more superior, level four includes the superclavicular lymph nodes. And then separately, you also have the internal mammary lymph nodes. Um, so for this patient that has found uh, on exam to have a centimeter, seven centimeter breast mass with uh, fixed axillary lymphadenopathy, um, I'd be wanting to get a bilateral diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound followed by corneal biopsy. Okay. So on mammogram with tomosynthesis, she has architectural distortion and a irregular mass measuring 5.5 by 3.2 centimeters at 3 o'clock, 4 centimeters from the nipple in the left breast, along with multiple enlarged axillary lymph nodes, the largest, which is um, 2.5 by 2.1 centimeters. Bold findings are also seen on ultrasound. 
her right breast is normal, and then she gets an ultrasound guided core needle biopsy of the breast mass and the axillary lymph node. This confirms an IDC, grade 3, ERPR positive, HER2 negative, KI67 is 40% with metastatic disease to the lymph node. Radiology places a clip in the axillary lymph node. Um, so now that you have all of this information, can you just briefly review clinical staging for us? Sure. Um, so to first talk about the T stage, um, anything two centimeters or less is classified as a T1. Uh, between two and five centimeters is a T2. Then once you get over five centimeters, you're at a T3. And then um, if you have extension to the chest wall, adherence to the pec muscle, or skin involvement, uh, that represents a T4 lesion. Uh, talking about the lymph node staging, if the patient has mobile lymph nodes in level one or two, then that's an N1. If any of those lymph nodes are fixed, that becomes an N2 staging. And if there's an internal mammary node, that's also N2 disease. Um, if a patient has a level three or four uh, involved lymph node or a positive um, INN with multistation lymphadenopathy, then that's classified as N3. Okay, great. Very thorough. So try to remember that two and five centimeter cutoffs for T staging and that the mobility of axillary lymph nodes is an important clinical exam finding for clinical end staging. Also, any level three or four lymph node is automatically considered N3. So now we have confirmed this patient has a locally advanced IDC. What is her clinical stage and what are your next steps? So with a five and a half centimeter primary lesion and with fixed adenopathy, her clinical stage is a T3N2. Um, since she is a postmenopausal patient, we don't really need to worry about um, fertility concerns um, or to obtain a pregnancy test. Um, but given kind of some of the exam findings and uh, things that showed up on imaging, I'd like to get a bilateral uh, breast MRI to characterize uh, her burden of disease. Okay. Um, would you want to get anything else, like any additional staging scans or genetic testing for this patient? Good question. Um, so per the NCCN guidelines, uh, staging imaging should only be considered if there's suspicion for metastatic disease. Um, there are many indications for genetic testing, which you can also find on the NCCN guidelines, but main highlights are uh, testing for patients that are diagnosed with breast cancer at any age, 45 or younger, patients with triple negative breast cancer, any close blood relative with breast, ovarian, or pancreatic cancer, or de novo high-risk prostate cancer, a patient that has an Ashkenazi Jewish descent, or if the patient is male. All right, thank you for that. So there is no, uh, no concerning history or physical exam findings for distant metastatic disease. She does not meet criteria for genetic testing, and you get the breast MRI, and it shows multifocal enhancing disease in the left breast spanning seven by seven by eight centimeters at two o'clock with level one and two adenopathy in the ipsilateral axilla. The biopsy clip is seen in a level one lymph node metastasis, and the other lymph node stations, including the IMNs, appear radiographically normal. So does, do these breast MRI uh, findings change her staging? Um, no, given um, that she still has uh, adenopathy in level one and two lymph nodes um, that are clinically fixed, she remains a clinical N2, and the fact that her tumor was still over five centimeters, that's a T3 disease. So. Um, she's going to be a, a T3N2 still. 
Okay. So you're sitting in tumor board and they ask you, what is your treatment recommendation? The patient has informed the team that she is leaning towards a bilateral mastectomy. So with the degree of locally advanced disease that she has, I think at this point um, I'd be advocating for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. We already know that she has um, lymph node positive disease and a pretty sizable primary. Um, so I'd be discussing neoadjuvant chemo with her. Um, there's a few different options for chemo, um, but commonly used ones uh, would be dose-dense doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide for four cycles, followed by weekly paxitaxel uh, for 12 cycles. Um, and, you know, the, the benefits of the chemo include that, you know, in a patient that was interested in undergoing a smaller surgery like lumpectomy, you may be able to downstage her prior to surgery. Um, it also kind of serves as a litmus, a litmus test to see how effective the chemo uh, will work on her disease and may also serve as kind of a prognostic marker depending on her degree of pathologic response. Excellent. So she completes her chemotherapy and gets a restaging breast MRI before surgery, but unfortunately only demonstrates a partial treatment response. Her index lesion has shrunk by about 25% and the axillary lymph nodes are grossly the same. So then she goes on, she gets a left modified radical mastectomy, she gets a right simple mastectomy with prepectoral expander placement and a left axillary lymph node dissection. What are you most interested in on the surgical pathology? So for this patient, she had a clinical T3 N2 invasive ductal carcinoma. She had a minimal response to neoadjuvant chemo. Um, at this point, I still think that she would be benefiting from post-mastectomy radiation therapy. On surgical pathology, I'd want to know what the margin status was, uh, the measurement of treatment effect, how many lymph nodes were positive, um, the total number of lymph nodes that were removed, whether there was any E&E, and then you know, the tumor biology uh, post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Exactly. So there are a few clinical scenarios where patients may be able to skip PMRT, but for this patient, she definitely needs adjuvant radiation given her clinical N2 disease and receipt of uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So on surgical pathology, she has a residual 4-centimeter primary with treatment response. She has 7 out of 17 lymph nodes positive. There's no E&E. ER is greater than 95%. PR is 70%. HER2 is negative. KI67 is 2%. Her surgical margins are negative. Um, so knowing all this information, please describe what dose and fractionation you would treat with? So I would again be recommending left post-mastectomy radiation therapy to the reconstructed um, chest wall. I'd be treating to a dose of 50.4 gray uh, in 28 fractions with bolus for the first th 13 fractions. And then uh, given her nodal involvement, I'd be treating with comprehensive regional nodal radiation treating levels one through three, the superclav area, as well as the IMNs. Okay, very good. Um, and then the regional nodes would also be prescribed 50.4 gray. So after she recovers from surgery and her expanders are at desired volume, she's ready to start radiation. How are you gonna stem this patient and describe your treatment volumes? Uh, sure, so um, I think you know, first things first, if this patient is having expanders placed, I would be talking with the plastic surgeon about kind of the contralateral side, um, trying to see if we could leave that side uh, not completely inflated because that would kind of impact uh, the setup of my radiation field, especially if I'm trying to cover the internal mammary nodes. Um, but I would sim the patient head first, 
um, supine on a breastboard with their ipsilateral arm raised and head turned to the contralateral side. I'd be wiring her breast, any scars, drain sites, and mark the breast borders. The superior border would be at the level of the inferior clavicle, clavicle head, the medial border at the patient's midline, lateral at the mid-axillary line, and inferior about one to two centimeters below the inframammary fold. And then given that this was a left-sided tumor, I'd also be obtaining a DIBH scan if it's available. Um, to cover my CTV uh, for the reconstructed breast and chest wall, my superior border would be the bottom of the clavicular head down about two centimeters inferior of the implant. Uh, the posterior border would include the pectoralis major muscle and ribs. For the lymph nodes, I would again be contouring levels one through three and then the supraclav area. And then the internal mammary node contours we located between the first three interspaces uh, between the ribs, stopping at the fourth rib to include the thoracic vessels. And then the pertinent OARs to be mindful of in this case would be the heart, the lungs, esophagus, spinal cord, and the contralateral reconstructed breast. Okay, very good. And don't forget that for post-mastectomy radiation, you always include the pectoralis major muscle and ribs in your CTV volumes. This is different than adjuvant radiation in the breast conservation setting, where you do not include the muscle or the ribs. So in a different episode, we go through radiation planning for locally advanced breast cancer in greater detail with Josh. He did an excellent job with that, so we're not going to... Um, discuss that again here, but let's just briefly go over how you're going to set up your IMN fields. There are a few ways to do it. And Ryan, can you just quickly go over this for our listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. So a lot is dependent on the patient's anatomy. Um, and so it's a little bit of a trial and error when you're putting on your fields. Um, one way that we do it at my institution is by using wider or deeper tangents uh, to try to catch the internal mammary nodes in the field. Um, but you have to be careful because depending on the patient's anatomy, the heart and lung um, would, can possibly be getting a significant amount of radiation. And so you want to be able to make sure you can meet your constraints. An alternative way is that you can use electrons. Um, this would require making sure that the lateralization of your tangent fields uh, permit for a suitable electron field that's wide enough uh, to be able to use clinically. Uh, if the internal memory nodes are too deep, an electron-photon mix can be used for this field. When placing the internal memory node electron field, you have to ensure that the gantry angle is matched uh, to your anterior breast gantry angle, um, but adjusted uh, about five to seven degrees anteriorly to account for the lateral bowing of the electron dose distribution. Feathering of the field with tangent fields uh, can be considered as well. Excellent job. And also IMRT is an alternative technique if you're unable to adequately cover IMNs after um, trying those other um, techniques. So what are some key dose constraints you're looking out for? Um, so for this patient, I'd be concerned uh, about the mean heart dose. I want to keep it under four gray. Then the ipsilateral lung V20 under 30%. Very good. Okay, so your patient, she finishes radiation, she has some fatigue, she has a little mild patchy moist exclamation at the end of treatment, and you prescribe her some steroid cream, instruct her to come back in two weeks for a skin check. And at that visit, she asks you if she's complete with treatment. What are you going to tell her? So this patient had significant residual disease after neoadjuvant chemo. 
Um, therefore, she should get one year of Olaparib, and this should be in conjunction with endocrine therapy given her hormone positivity. Uh, because she's postmenopausal, I would recommend letrozole. All right. Wonderful. Excellent job, Ryan. Um, that was great. This concludes our episode on locally advanced breast cancer. Again, thank you so much to Dr. Michael Shang at UCLA for his help with today's case. You can find the show notes for the episode at thebean.com. Thank you to you for listening. And to remember, always trust but verify. Great. Ryan, tell us about yourself outside of work. <laughs>